Welcome to Concept to Creation, a podcast featuring entrepreneurs who share their business journey. We'll hear what motivated them to turn their dreams into a business. They'll share stories from the trenches of business, from raising capital, creating products or services, navigating regulations, hiring employees, and managing competition and growth. We'll discover their successes and failures, and they'll provide advice for budding entrepreneurs. Now, here's your host and fellow entrepreneur, Mike Conrad. Welcome back. I appreciate you being here. Welcome back to Concept Creation. Uh, today, I'm very privileged and honored to have my guest uh, join me today. He is the person behind STI Electronics out of Madison, Alabama, and that would be Dave Raby. Dave um, started the business with his father, Jim Raby, uh, the iconic Jim Raby that most people in this industry know if they're older than, you know, about my age anyway. Um, and um, uh, Jim, uh, David now runs uh, STI Electronics, and, and uh, I would like to welcome him as my guest. So, David, thanks for being here. All right. Thanks for having me, Mike. So, I, it's hard to start a business. It's hard to run a business. It's hard to grow a business and sustain a business. None of those come easy. I think it's even harder to take over a family business, uh, you know, particularly from your father, who was, as I said earlier, iconic. He, he was definitely an icon in this industry. We'll get into more of that in a little bit. Um, and at some point, uh, you took over the family business. Um, I know your father passed um, a few years ago, I, I, I believe. Right. 2017. Yeah. Um, so obviously you are running the business, and I'm assuming that you were running it uh, before your father passed. Um, yes. There was a handoff at some point. So I want to get into that. I, I think that it is um, the stakes are high, and there's a lot of eyes on you because you know it's kind of like those memes. You have one job. Don't screw this up, right? Because uh, yeah, and uh, and you know, like she said, we can get into it in a little while, but there were multiple handoffs. Oh, 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 yes. Okay. Oh, was it a handoff? I'm coming. Was it a handoff? Oh no, I'm coming back. No, you can have yes. it. No, I'm coming back. It was yeah. the long, the long goodbye, right? It's from the business. Like yeah, yeah. Well, uh, let's kind of go back in time before you entered into the family business. What did you do? Um, actually, I always wanted to be an airline pilot, <laughs> which very yeah quite similar to what I ended up doing. I think flying is less dangerous than running a business. <laughs> uh, yes, by, by a lot. Um, but no, I went through, uh, I went to college with that in mind. Um, got to college, was on the flying team in college, which we competed against other schools and um, um, had a good time doing that but learned that I really didn't like being told that you've got to fly at nine o'clock this morning and you've got to go to this city and you've got to come back to this city. And, um, you know, you've got to do three landings and all, all of this kind of thing. Um, I like going up on a nice day and just tooling around looking at things. Um, so just figured, okay, if I get hired by Delta, they're not going to let me just go out on a nice day and take the plane to the Bahamas they're going to have a little more demanding schedule. I, I, can, so, I can see uh, the I can see the announcement from the cockpit, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> I'm going to circle over the Grand Canyon for the next three hours. Yeah, sorry. Right. But, 
I yes. want to tool around up here. Yes, and it's raining where we're supposed to be going. So, so we're not going. We're going yeah, <laughs> we're going to Hawaii. <laughs> yes, but um, so no, I quickly decided, okay, maybe that's not going to work. Um, but I was still fascinated by airplanes and airlines. So it's like, okay, I'll just run an airline. And um, got out of school, worked for a commuter for a little while, then got hired by Delta in sales and was like number 45,000 in seniority and um, was having a good time, but wasn't patient enough for 44,999 people to retire or die so I could run the place and um, decided, well, you know, really it's business I like. And around that same time, my dad was looking at getting out of what he was doing. And um, STI, which actually we started it as Soldering Technology International. We, we did change the name later to STI for some reasons we can get into later. But um, he was with the Navy and for a couple of years, even while I was with Delta, um, we'd been doing seminars around the country. And so I'd take a week's vacation and he'd take a week's vacation from the government and we'd hop on airplanes and we'd go do a seminar in Boston and then we'd go do one in, you know, Austin, Texas. And then six, uh, six months later, we'd go do one in Orlando and Seattle or wherever. And here's and, your, here's uh, your father, Jim Raby up on the screen right here in case yes. uh, those uh, who have never had the opportunity to meet him, haven't met him. There he is yeah. right there. And actually, I think if you look back over my head in this video, you see him back there too. So yes, he, you're he's right. Watching yes. over me all the time. <laughs> but um, but we would do go out and do those seminars. Um, both it was strictly part time at that time. We never thought the business would be around forty years later. Uh, that wasn't the plan. We were each doing our own thing, and um, so you know we were. We'd get a few checks in. It was expensive to market in those days because there was no internet or anything like that. So, um, you know, he would do the technical part. I was the logistics guy that would end up operating the slide projector and making sure the slides were facing the right direction and and change the uh, change the things of slides as the you know as he finished one. And um, so we did that for about two or three years. And he decided then to leave the government, started soldering technology full time. I was working there at night. I'd work my day job at Delta and then I'd go work with him. Um, he was doing consulting work and that kind of thing. And I was making micro sections and taking pictures of things as he would go out in the field and bring something back. And, you know, I really didn't know much of what I was looking for. It was kind of what I'd learned from the from the seminars I've been to. And, uh, but as we did more and more of that, I started having more fun. And so I eventually quit my job at Delta and came over to STI full time. Um, and we keep talking about my dad. My mom was in it also. Ellen is uh, your mom, we, right? Yes, Ellen. Um, and we're, we really were a family business. Uh, it was the three of us. Um, just to show you kind of how naive we were on what we were doing. The plan was when we started the business, we would each own a third of it. And because he was working for the government at the time we started, 
and we were working with some government contractors, he wasn't allowed to own any of it, just for legal purposes. So we gave my mom 51% and I took 49% and dad didn't own any of it, but he was the face of the company. After he got out of the government and he, we could split it up, we had discovered that it was good to have my mom own 51%. <laughs> One owned so company. So we never changed that. Yes. So my dad always said that, you know, we started the company together, but he was the face of it and he never owned anything. He just got a paycheck from us. Yeah. But, um, so your dad, just to, to fill in uh, the details, your dad, my first memory of meeting Jim uh, was when I was involved on the EMPF's manufacturing uh, committee with Bob Matson and, and, and okay. my dad there. And I, I think your dad, I, I think this is an accurate statement. He is not only your dad, he's also the father of uh, many uh, military standards uh, that were written. So specifically, my memory was weapon spec 6536. And he had a phrase that it just cracked me up in, in the standard. Basically, to paraphrase it very loosely, this is the way you need to do this. Any other way is subject to review and disapproval. <laughs> that would totally just turn someone off, right? It's like, in, in other words, this is the way you're going to do it, right? Yeah. I don't remember that particular phrase, but I don't doubt that at all. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, for years, when I would meet somebody, they would say, are you Jim Raby's son? And I would kind of have to read the room to see if I should be backing up because I was going to get punched. Right. Right. Do you lie or do you tell the or truth? I was going to get hugged. And, right. It could go either it could way. Either yeah. But yeah, just to back up a little bit on him, um, he, him and my mom both, um, their childhoods, they were sharecroppers. Um, hmm. They worked in the cotton fields in Madison County, Alabama. And, um, you know, pick cotton, uh, chopped cotton. And I mean, I'm out in Alabama heat now, you know, as little as I can be. And it's just miserable out there. Um, but they grew up working in that. Um, he graduated from high school, joined the Navy, uh, became an electronics technician, technician uh, was on a ship during, toward the end of the Korean War. Um, but then came back and was looking for a job. And with his electronics training, he was lucky enough to find one with the Army Ballistic Missile Agency here in Huntsville, which consisted of some really smart people, including a bunch of German scientists, which turned out to be Dr. Von Braun's team. And um, they later changed their name from Army Ballistic Missile Agency to uh, NASA and you know built the the um uh mercury gemini and apollo spaceflight um program so i grew up as a nasa brat growing up through that dad he was the one that he did electronics for them but he helped develop their training programs and helped do standardization to make sure they were doing things the same way because you know here in Huntsville we think of, of a lot of things being built here but they and they were 
but they were also a lot built in California and in Massachusetts and all other places, and they had to be able to plug into each other. So they had to be built the same way. And he was responsible for making sure the contractors were building things uh, the same way every time. So he did a lot of the spec writing and setting up training programs, which came into play later. Um, as time went along, which would have been about the mid-70s, which was after the Skylab program, uh, but before the space shuttle, um, he had decided that he was ready to go do something else. And the U.S. military was having some reliability issues on electronics. So they came recruiting. And they took us to all kinds of great places of um, showing us, you know, if you come with the Air Force, Air Force has some really nice bases around, around the country. And they, they took us to those and showed us, you know, you can live here and you can play golf here and you can do all of this. Um, Navy did the same thing. And um, then it came time to actually offer us a job. And um, the Navy offered us China Lake, California, which wasn't one of the ones they had taken us to see. I mean, there right. are there are some good things about China Lake, but it was not what really we had envisioned. Um, so it's like, okay, what's the Air Force going to offer? And they offered Minot, North Dakota. Um, so that's how the soldering technology branch ended up at China Lake. Um, Interesting. And, so, they, um, so they show you the exotic bases and then they, they give yes. you China Lake, which is right. in the desert. Ridgecrest area. Uh, yes. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Um, and like I said, there are some good features about China Lake. It took us a long time to discover some of those because it was not, um, well, first off, lake is a misnomer. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Lake. Uh, it's not even a relative term. Yeah. There, there, yeah no, that's really not no, a lake. There, it's a huge beach. Just no, no water. No water. Right. But, but at least you're not, uh, at least you uh, are avoiding the Alabama humidity. Out yes, China Lake, there is right? no humidity there, um, but which that, but at 115, it really doesn't matter that much. Yeah, I mean, there's yes. the old, old Johnny Carson line of um, "There's no humidity in your oven, but you don't see your Thanksgiving turkey smiling about it." That's right. I just got back from um, the the river, as we call it, you know, the okay. Colorado River near Parker, uh, Arizona, uh, a few days ago, and it was 117 degrees and. There's no relief. You can't drink yeah. your way out of that. You can stay no. in the river, but once, but you, if you go on a boat, the faster you go, the more hot air is just hitting your right. face. There's, you know, there's yes. very little relief except floating in the river, right? Right. And, and if there's any breeze, it's bringing sand with it. Yes, exactly right. So you you were kind of a, a desert rat uh, yes. for, for a long time. But, but Dad set up the soldering technology branch there, and one of the places he always talked about he went into was uh, General Dynamics in Pomona. And I don't remember the exact numbers, but it was something like they had, they were working to 15 different contracts for, for the military and they were doing it to 17 different standards. And his idea was let's make one standard. So everybody can build to one standard. And, um, did that become yeah. the weapon spec? Is that where 6536 well, came from? 6536 was the main Navy one. Right. And they first had to unite the Navy, but then Mill Standard 2000 came along. Yes. Which um, 
uh, dad always told the story that the way that was named was his boss. He presented the idea to his boss and his boss, you know, this would have been in mid to late seventies. And his boss says, sure, you can go do that. There's no way you'll be done before 2000. And that's where the mill standard 2000 came, came from. Um, but the not idea quite, not quite was, an inspirational name, right? It was more no, of a, yeah, you'll never get it done name. Right. Right. But you know, the idea was if you're a government contractor, you shouldn't be asked to be working to a different, a different standard for every contractor working on. So yeah. this was a unifying thing on that. Um, and just I mean, a, a story that he always liked to tell also, you know, contractors, every time they ch he changed something, they hated it, you know, because their way worked and there's no way anybody else's way would ever work. Right. But there was a company here in Alabama that made fish finders. And every time he would write a new paragraph or a new section for the mill standard, he would come back to that fish finder company and get them to implement as a process. And they basically didn't know that it was a military document. You know, they just saw it as a good business practice. So they must and have had the most reliable fish finders on the planet. Exactly. And uh, so it worked out great for everybody. And then you now he'd go back to a military contractor and they would say, no, this won't work. And he'd say, look, I've got this history showing it will. And you're, you know, you're going to reduce your rework and you're going to increase your reliability, all of that. So, um, so yeah, there are fish finders that have been made in Alabama that have been made to the best military specifications. That's great. So at some point, Jim decides to um, take his company further uh, oh. and, and kind of separate it or at least add another component outside of the military. Uh, and um, originally, STI was set up in San Dimas, California. Yes. And, and then moved to uh, Alabama. So right. what was the reason for the move from uh, California, Southern California, just uh, San Dimas, for those who don't know, is about 40 miles southeast of Los Angeles, not in the desert, um, no. <laughs> in, in, up against the foothills. And right. so what, uh, what caused the move from, from there to uh, back to his roots, back to Alabama? Well, um, I, d I don't want to say anything bad about your home. <laughs> But California I don't live in San Dimas, so I'm okay. Yeah. Okay, California is an expensive place to be in business. Um, yeah. There are, um, you know, there are a lot of um, regulations, and there are a lot of over regulations that are there. Um, when we started the, when we first picked out San Dimas, there were an awful lot of, of government contractors in the Los Angeles area, and. As time went on, we realized we were getting on airplanes more and more, and they had moved out of the area. Now, they didn't move to a particular spot, and not all of them moved, but it just, there wasn't a business case of if we were starting all over, that that was the place we ought to be. And, you know, we, we did a search, we, we looked at four or five different cities, but this was always home. So you know, the tiebreaker was going to be come back to Alabama. Yeah, that um, makes sense. But I mean, I am sitting here right now. I'm 10 miles from a large army installation, Marshall Space Flight Center. 
and then all the spinoffs that come along from those. And it's a great place for us to be. So um, much less uh, restrictive than being in California, uh, much lower cost. So never, never something we've regretted. Yeah, I always well, enjoy going back to California. But. Yeah. Yeah, right now, there's an exodus from California at, at the moment. Um, it, we get both. We get exits and entrances and right. exits and entrances. There's ebbs and flows. Right now, it's, it's the flow out. Um, but renting a U-Haul right now, uh, if you're leaving California, it's like $2,000. And if you're coming back into California, it's, like, it's almost free because they're yes. just trying to get their trucks back. So uh, the only thing I, I – we have a lot of friends who – are leaving California and the, and the trendy places to go are either like Eagle, uh, Idaho or Austin, Texas right. or, or Nashville, Tennessee. Right. They're all just, and, and I tell people, if you're going to go there, change your license plates before you get there. Do not show up with a California plate because you're not greeted with open arms, you know, no. because Californians are selling their homes that are, you know, uh, elevated prices and then right. just driving up the markets everywhere they go. Right. Yeah. I've, I've got a daughter in grad school in Nashville and um, prices up there are like what we were paying in California. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, uh, we tend to do that. Um, so did STI started as a small enterprise. So I'm guessing there was not a, a whole lot of major capital investment that had to be made. Uh, it seems to be a company that, started small and eventually grew. So normally one of my, my standard go-to questions is, you know, how did you raise capital? Did you get investors or VCs or did you go to a bank or was there a savings involved? Um, this is probably not as, as potent of a question because right. I, I, it probably just started uh, organically. But uh, did Jim have to uh, raise money to start STI or, or, or starting technology, starting technology international back in the day, uh, as it was called, or did it just kind of start organically? We did not do any kind of fundraising. Um, he was too young to re get his retirement from the government, but he was able to get some kind of lump sum payment. So they had a little savings account that, um, most of that, became our startup money. Um, the nice thing is, you know, like I said, it was myself, my mom and my dad, and none of us really made any money. So as long as we could get enough to live on out of the business, everything else went back into the business. So, um, you know, you got to watch your cash flow, but we were able to survive those early days without, um, having to get any kind of outside investors. I mean, you know, we had, um, I remember it took a little while to buy all the like desk and things. Cause you know, where you get the money for that? Um, it was a long time before we had any kind of computer. My mom did all the books by hand and all that kind of thing. But, um, but no, we did not go out and do any kind of fundraising or anything like that. And as a result, we never had any outside ownership or anything like that. That's great. Um, what were some of the early business challenges? You talk about, you know, kind of bootstrapping your way into the business. Um, but w were there any challenges that were unexpected, uh, particularly in the early days? Well, um, 
I mean, first off, not having any money, um, you know, I mean, that limits what you can do. And dad was the big dreamer. I was more the operations guy and my mom was the realist that, you know, dad would dream up something and convince me of it. And then mom would remind us, you know, we've got $16 in the bank. So, um, you know, how are you going to do that? I, I would say one of the biggest surprises because we were always, we were always very frugal because of the way we started and we didn't have really much margin for error or anything like that. Uh, but one of the biggest surprises was we were always putting money back into the company. So I remember we had our second or third year, we had what we thought was a really good year. I mean, you know, the profits showed really high and for relatively speaking and, and all of that. And we're thinking this is good. And our CPA comes to us and says, you know, you owe X amount in taxes. And we're like, we don't have that. How can we owe in taxes? Because we don't have any money. He says, you've got inventory and inventory is the same as having cash. And it's like, okay, we didn't know that. <laughs> and so the first time we ever had to borrow money was because we'd made a lot of money. <laughs> and like I said, a lot is, is relative, but- um, sure. Well, I think a lot of um, entrepreneurs, before I, before I make that statement, do you consider yourself an entrepreneur or are you, um, did you get into this for other reasons? So in other words, did you, you said you always wanted to be an airline pilot, right? You never said, yeah, I always wanted to be an entrepreneur. Uh, yeah. So do you consider yourself an entrepreneur uh, now? And, and did you before you got into this? I do now. Um, the by the time I got into the business, I wanted to run a business. So, okay. so yeah, you know, it, it. I'd given up on the. I decided the airline didn't have to be the business. Right. You know? Okay. But so now, now having said that, we've been. I've been at this thirty-eight years now, and. 38 years ago, I never thought I would be sitting here still doing this. I mean, it, it's not like we thought the business would go away or anything. It's just we never thought that far ahead. And, you know, right. it's like, you know, for me, I was leaving a job that wasn't, I wasn't going to go very far in, I didn't think. And it was just, this was something to do. And, um, you know, but it became the lifestyle. And now I can't imagine doing anything different or different. That's great. What I was going to get to when I asked you about the entrepreneur statement is many entrepreneurs, I say young entrepreneurs, I don't necessarily mean chronological age, but mm -hmm. young in their entrepreneurship, right. um, really don't understand business finances. They don't understand income statements or balance sheets or cash flow statements or mm -hmm. things like that, right? And I was guilty of that. I looked at two numbers on the income statement on the PL. I looked at the revenue and net. Okay. I don't care about anything in between. Right. And, and I always thought that if you have a net that's greater than zero, <laughs> you mm -hmm. know, a black number rather, rather than a red right. number, you're doing great. And, and of course you pay tax on the net, right? Mm -hmm. But that doesn't necessarily mean you have any money. Right. Uh, you know, I took solace in, in my AR aging, like, look, I got all this money coming in. Right. 
and you pay tax on that money. Uh, accounts receivable is taxable. If you're on yes. a accrual system, it's taxable. Yes. Yet you don't actually have it, right? It's it's right. In, it's in AR. It's in inventory. Um, it's in it payroll. It's in uh, obligations. You know the stuff you put on the books, and all of a sudden you're having to pay tax on money you don't actually physically have access to, right? Right. You can't send the IRS circuit boards, you know, from inventory, right? You can't, you can't send them a, an IOU based on your receivables, right? So uh, that was a hard lesson to learn. Right. How long in your experience with STI did it take for you to get really savvy to figure out all those little gotchas and loopholes and, and all that? Well, first off, I did ask our accountant about sending soldering irons to the IRS one time as payment, and <laughs> he highly he recommended against it. You had, you had plenty of those, right? Yes, he, he highly recommended against it, and I think I was wise to follow his recommendation that time. Um, you asking how long it took me to get savvy, you're assuming I am now, because I still learn things as we go along. Fair enough, yes. Um, and I mean, you know, the rules are always changing and the last couple of years they've changed a lot. Um, probably though, five, six, seven years, I've, I really started understanding it better. Uh, it was less than that to learn that cash flow was more important than that profit number in some cases, because you can go out of business on a profitable job um, very quickly. And um, now, if it's not a profitable job, you're going to eventually go out. But uh, a profitable job can make it happen just as fast, if not faster. I want to touch on that. I'm so glad you brought that up. Uh, that was a hard lesson for me to learn. Uh, but before I, I get there, um, you mentioned Jim, your father, was the visionary of the company. And right. your mother, Ellen, was kind of the more pragmatic, like, yes. here are the numbers, Jim. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> so there are several types of entrepreneurs. There are conceptual creative people. There, those are the visionaries. There are the tactical logistical people, uh, strategic maybe, you know, that, that uh, just gets things done. The worker bees. I find that, and I don't know if Jim fell into this category or not, but I find that people who are strategic, people who are visionaries are also very frustrating to work with because people like that, like I am, tend to start a lot of projects, but they're not really interested in finishing them. They, they're like little fire starters, right? They just start all these fires and then it's someone else's job to take them over because we are interested in the, in the new, in, in what hasn't been done before. We're not really interested in making, you know, making it work mainstream. Is that, was that your father? Was he that type of person that lit a bunch of fires? You, you just described him very well. He, he, he started a lot of fires and a lot of my job was to figure out which ones we wanted to keep going because he had, he had a lot of good ideas. He had a lot of bad ideas too, but he had, he had a lot of good ideas, but we weren't in a position to do all of them. And, you know, some of, some ideas just for a variety of reasons didn't fit in with what we were trying to do or, or seem realistic to us. Um, but my job kind of became, 
okay, which ones are we going to do? How are we going to accomplish it? And that type of thing. So I'm the more tactical and pragmatic one. And strategic, he, it sounds like, too, right? the dreamer one. <laughs> yeah. Well, do you agree with this, that someone like your father, uh, that is the visionary, that is very conceptual, um, can start a company because they can create something out of nothing and they don't let the facts get in the way, right? Right. They, they just <laughs> pull it up a china shop. They just do it. Um, and people like yourself who are strategic and logistical and tactical um, can keep a company going. But your father probably alone, left to his own skill set, his own talents, probably would have a hard time growing a company and sustaining it over years. And someone like yourself might have a hard time starting something from scratch, right? Mm-hmm. Is that a, do you think that's a fair assessment? That, that's a very fair statement. I mean, um, dad and I, and, and like I said, you had to include my mom in there also. Yep. We, make, we made, and I think attitude-wise still make a great team uh, because our strengths are different. And, you know, we would, um, you know, we had the advantage of being family. So there, there's good and bad about a family business. Um, but the good thing is there's nobody I, tr- I ever trusted more than my mom and my dad. <laughs> so, right. and, you know, they felt the same way with me. And um, so we knew we were always working for the same goal and trying to get to the same place. We had disagreements, but we always understood that we were, we were all trying for the best for each other. Um, you know, you're exactly right. I think without me, dad probably would have done a lot more wild and crazy things and probably would have made a nice living for himself. I don't know that there would have been much of a company along with it. Yeah. Um, you know, he would have, he would have had fun as a consultant. Right. Now that makes sense. And, and would have done great at that. Um, you know, me without him, I'm not sure exactly what I would be doing. Um, but it probably wouldn't have been involving Sar. <laughs> right. Well, you may have been up in that cockpit, you know, who knows? Well, right? it could be. I mean, I, I, you know, my dream job's always been playing power forward for the Lakers, but so far they haven't called. <laughs> you know, anything is possible, you know, stay by the phone. Uh, you talked about, you know, family business and sometimes there's disagreements. Uh, in your world, does the business find its way at the dining room table or has oh. there some type of separation? We never had any separation. Um, 24-7 you know, business. Was- it was the dining room table. It was um, Thanksgiving dinner, Christmas dinner. Um, it was if we ever happened to go on vacation together, anything like that. Um, you know, and I was single up until we moved back here to Alabama. So for those first several years, it was, I mean, it, cliche, but it was like I was married to the business. I mean, sure. you know, I, I, I didn't really have much of a life outside of the business and it was working, you know, if it was 10 hours a day or 16 hours a day, that's what you did. And, um, you know, there, there, I didn't really have any reason to do anything else. 
And um, then I got back here and got married and it added my wife, Sheila, to the equation. And she has been good about, you know, let's, let's drop this subject for the, <laughs> for the next couple hours while we enjoy this time together. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Cause she didn't grow up in that environment. Right. That's yes. not normal to her. Right. That's, right. she didn't grow up with that. So yes. Yeah. That's probably good for your marriage. Um, my wife and I kind of have the same thing. Um, I bring, obviously to say I don't bring business home would be a fallacy because I, I bring things that are really bothering me or really making me happy. Right. Uh, right. The minutia of the business stays at the business. We yeah. don't, we don't talk about that, but just the, you know, the big worries or the, or the big celebrations, they, they kind of make right. it home. Mm -hmm. you, you talked earlier about uh, growth uh, or, or suggested that um, I, that's where I can see a difference between your father's personality, which is much like mine and your personality. Your father would probably say yes to every job, he, he, he could get, right. um, but the, the most people, younger entrepreneurs don't realize that sometimes you can't afford to grow or you can't afford to grow fast because when someone takes on a new contract or a new job or a new customer, um, they, they may have to scale up. They may have to buy more equipment, more space, more employees. Um, so how did you handle, how did you work as a throttle? between the forces that are trying to push growth as fast as possible and the forces that the natural forces that limit growth like cash flow. But no, we, I mean, I learned to forecast cash flow. I, I learned how, the importance of cash flow. I'm not sure it's still a very hard thing to forecast simply because it, people never pay quite as fast as you think they're going to be. And it always requires a little more than you think it's going to and all of that, but you can get a good idea um, of which direction the cash is headed. And we were able to skip some jobs. We were able to go out and if you needed to finance some jobs with the bank um, and um, you know, sometimes we were right on those. Sometimes we were wrong. I mean, you know, we're, you know, that that's. I don't think any of us have ever been right on everything. So, um, you know, we have some. We we came come up with some new projects over the years, and um, at times you'd be able to look over and say, "Hey, look, that's a twenty thousand dollar doorstop sitting over there because it's a project that never went anywhere." But um, well, I've always we, said it's it's not bad to fail. You just need a few more successes than failures. Yes. I think yes. you learn from failure, right? I mean, I mean, right. how many times have you guys tried something and realized it wasn't a good idea, but you learned something from it? Well, when, uh, knowing that we were going to do this interview today, um, I kind of made a list of different things we've been involved in. And it was a little scary how many things that we've done that we don't do anymore because it turns out in some cases, they weren't that good to be in to begin with. And, um, but, you know, luckily, the good, the good things are the things that have been good for us, we've been able to stuck, stick with. And um, we still like to go try new things. Sure. And sometimes they work. And, um, you know, one of the, one of the expressions I've learned over the years is try to fail fast. And, um, you know, and that didn't make sense to begin with, but don't keep pouring money into something that's not going to work or that's not working. 
You know, if yeah. try it, and if it if it doesn't start to turn around, get out of it. Yeah, and um, it's funny so, the things we learn. You know, the hard way, yes. right? Um, yeah, because it's so easy to just keep shoveling money in that hole. <laughs> sure. Well, I used to think talking about shoveling money. I used to think the solution to every problem was growth. You grow your yes. way out of a problem, right? And uh -huh. going back to the discussion of growth is I, I think that is just a recipe for disaster that is pushing the stick down you know right. uh, and uh, you're just getting closer to the earth so your father Jim was the visionary of the company and you were the, the kind of tactical uh, guy um, who's the visionary now where do you get your where does STI get its vision from today well hopefully I've gotten better at that uh, number one but also um, about 20 years ago we were through some things we were doing. We were able to add two really talented people that have become my, uh, for lack of a better term, I'll call them my right hand people. Uh, but Diana Bradford and Mark McMean, and the two of those, those two, they're not family, but they're the, I trust them like family, and they're they're the same as family. Um, Mark is the technical guy that can dream up things and go out and make them work. Um, Diana is the operations person that, you know, I go around and start fires now and she's the one that figures out how to put them out or nurture them or, or whatever needs to be done. And that's been a good combination for us. And, Sounds like um, the apple did not fall too far from the tree. No. And, and you know, it's funny we always said dad was the technical guy and I was the business guy, but over the years I've gotten a lot more technical and he was a whole lot better at business than he ever said he was. Yeah. And, um, so we, you know, we, we made a good combo there. <laughs> so there are, you know, among other things, your training company, you, you do a lot of things at STI, but you're, you're primarily an, an EMS provider, right? You're a contract manufacturer. Right. Um, there are, thousands of contract manufacturers out there some you know anywhere from tier one to tier four um the market size uh, for 2020 uh is uh, worldwide is about uh, 445 billion dollars it's a big business and it's estimated to go up by 2027 to 790 billion dollars so it's you know it's a, you're in a big industry how does how do you take sti and make it stand out from the hundreds, if not thousands, of other contract manufacturers that are that are out there, many probably within fifty miles of you. You know, so right. uh, how do you how do you make your company stand out above all well, others? I was excited to hear we're going to grow by three hundred billion dollars. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know, right? Well, we can just end it now, right? And go yeah. celebrate. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, we, that's a very good question. I mean, we. Um, where we're different or where we believe we're different is in the reliability of what we build. Uh, a 80, 85% of our business is for the U.S. government, um, various departments within the U.S. government, including the DOD. And they come to us because their hardware has to work. It's not something that um, you get a second chance on. 
and we're not the cheapest around uh never will be and but we give somebody a good value with a product that works and we have been we have moved into some medical fields for the same reason that you know those, those tie in together the same kind of requirements the military has that they're not allowed to fail uh, we've done some industrial products that have the same type of uh, requirements on them. You know, I don't think you're ever going to see us building, you know, toys or cell phones or something like that. Um, we're not set up to be competitive on that, and they don't require what we what we're good at. So, you know, we're we're trying to make a name for ourselves within this part of the industry, and. You know, I don't know, you know, we may be able to double in size. I don't know that we'll go much bigger than that. But um, there, there is, you know, the world keeps going more and more to electronics. Nobody ever says, I wish you could just make this bigger, bigger and heavier. Um, and, you know, and we're good at making things smaller and lighter and more rugged. Um, the, the military likes that. Some other agencies like that. The medical field likes that. Um, so that's what we're good at. And we just try to keep getting the message out that that's what we do and, and have happy customers. One of my favorite business books uh, is, and I don't read too many business books because I don't know. I just I like to have my own thoughts, but but one yes. that I really enjoyed was uh, by Jim Collins called "Good to Great," and he uh -huh. basically studied pairs of companies, publicly traded companies, so he had access to their finances. So Gillette and uh, uh, um, uh, another razor company, um, and, and and two paper companies, and two of these, and ones that you know they looked at what all the companies that did very well had in common, and what all the companies that did not do very well had in common. And there was, he broke it down to 10 or 12 attributes on both sides. And one of them on the pro side was do what you could be the best in the world at. Don't do something because you can. Don't be right. an also ran. Basically, you know, and, and I remember in my company, you know, there was, there was a time when we decided that we wanted to be everything to everybody. And when you're everything to everybody, you're basically nothing to everybody, right? There's, you're just not good at any one thing. You're kind of a mediocre company. And we made more money saying no to certain customers, to certain projects than we've made saying yes. And, mm -hmm. and uh, I'm sure, well, that's exactly what you just explained. You can't build cell phones. You're not going to build, you know, Nintendo uh game controllers for people. It's not your line of work, but what you do, yeah. you do well. Yeah, we've got three SMT lines and every once in a while I come up with the wild idea of, well, they're not running all three running all the time. We can get one of these low cost jobs in, you know, one of these simple jobs and just run it on the line when it's not busy. And first off, we don't really even know how to bid on one of those. And, um, but, you know, running a product down the surface mount line is not the hard part. The, the hard part is all the, all the systems and um, policies and procedures that go into place to make sure that it meets something 
Sure. And either we're going to ignore those for that, which is a bad habit to get into, or we're going to do it for free, which is a really bad habit to get into. And um, Diana and Mark will straighten me out and say, no, we're good like we are. Yeah. <laughs> and we'll just hold on and, you know, we'll, we'll add another job that fits our requirements and we'll get the machines busier that way. <laughs> I find that my experience is that customers that lead with price. So we answer the phone. And they go, how much is your machine and how much cheaper can I yeah. get it? And can I, can I have six months to pay for it? You know, the whole thing, right? Yeah. I find that those customers are better suited going to our competitors. It's the closest thing to a Trojan horse that we can send yes. our competitors because they'll eat them up from the inside. Right. And, and it took a long time for us to realize that because we thought the you know, cure to everything was more orders, right? Growth. And oh, yeah. And the cure to everything is the right orders at the right time, yes. right? Uh, so, uh, yeah, that's just a lesson learned the hard way. How do you f uh, define success today? At the early days of business, you define success as covering payroll next week, right? Yes. <laughs> a lot of little yeah. micro successes. Uh, we we never missed a payroll, um, although I can tell you myself, my mom, and my dad would take turns not depositing our checks sometimes yeah. <laughs> because there wasn't enough to cover that. But, yeah, I uh, think we've all been down that road. That is a right. rite of passage for, for yes. a small business. So how do you uh, define success today? That's a good question. I mean, I have stepped back some from the business. Uh, Mark and Diane are doing a lot more. They've got teams under them that are doing great things. And, you know, it for 35 plus years, there was not an hour of my life that I was awake that I didn't think about STI. And we've reached a point where that's not necessarily the case anymore. Some, somewhere along the way, we were having some kind of crisis and I realized Mark and Diana were as worried about it as I was. And that was comforting to me that I didn't have to worry so much if they were. <laughs> so, in some ways, that's been, a, from a personal point of view, that's been a success that I have been able to step back a little way, uh, a little bit from it. Um, you know, success financially, um, you know, I, I'm never going to go buy an island somewhere. It's, it's a little rock out in you know, the middle of a stream somewhere or something. But, um, you know, I mean, the company is, is, we're not worried about this next payroll coming up. We're not worried about, you know, the next jobs coming up. Um, you know, there are things economically worldwide that are out of our control that I have concerns over, but, um, you know, every company owner has that. Um, so, you know, I mean, I think, I don't, I don't know that I'm answering your question, but it, it's, um, we have, um, you know, we've reached a stability point where I'm not worried about we're going out of business tomorrow. And it may have taken longer to do that than I would like to. And to me, that's somewhat of a success. You know, I, yeah. the way I read your success, you didn't quite say it as, as, as strong as this, but I think your success is the fact that you can step back and not worry about the business. Mm -hmm. Right, you can start enjoying the business and not yes. micromanaging the business. You can work on your business, not in your business. Right. You could go to and, Hawaii 
and uh, to pan pack and and do a conference like right. we did last year um right. well, I think, well well it was yeah it was it was in uh, february oh, yeah. of last year yeah, yeah. it was okay. it was a year and this year a half ago this year we missed yeah um okay. but i i see that in in your journey uh and, yeah, and that, that is correct and i think that's hugely successful right to have the love of a business and the independence from it you're not sucked right. into the minutiae every day and to have a team of dedicated people who will worry on your behalf right um and and um and do things so that they you don't have to worry i think is uh, is a definite sign of success finally well, well, oh yeah go ahead let, let me interrupt there um for for years my title has been president and ceo and my goal has always been to be more ceo than president because i see president is the day-to-day -day stuff mm -hmm. the ceo is more the long-term thing and the right. overall thing right and my title hasn't changed but i think my mindset has shifted and diana handles more of the president stuff mark handles some of it and i'm being more ceo-ish and yeah. to me that's that's probably the success of it yeah i i totally agree i think you're spending your time up in the crow's nest you're looking over the horizon you know um, shouting your visions um, like your father did yes. uh, what advice would you give to budding entrepreneurs we'll wrap up with this what if someone's thinking of particularly these days uh, when you know the pandemic shook up a lot of careers and a lot of people found themselves out of a job uh, although that's quickly restoring uh, I think there was an opportunity for a lot of people to kind of jump ship and do something on their own. So what advice, knowing everything you've been through, what advice would you give either your younger self or a new entrepreneur? If there, if you've got a product or a service that people need, don't be scared to get out there and do it. Don't be scared to go out on your own. Um, but figure out what kind of investment, what it's going to cost you, um, how long it's going to take, and then probably double both of those because it's going to take more money and it's going to take more time than you think it is before it becomes successful. Um, but don't be scared to do it. And, um, you know, listen, go with what you believe but listen to your customers too because you may start out in one direction and you know the customer may come back and say hey this would you know this is really good but if you could if it would just do this instead and uh, be willing to make that don't be so stubborn that you can't make that adjustment i guess is the, the thing i would say but but the main thing is just know that it's going to take time and it's going to take money and it's going to take more of both of those than you think it will sound advice uh, and i think that's a very true statement uh david raby thank you so much for being my guest today on concept of creation i appreciate the insight i learned some things about your company i've always admired your company from afar uh, and uh, and the work you do and the status that your company has in our industry you you were a, f a former smta president right I, I was on the board for six years and i was president for four yes yeah well that's max term out you can't you can't even yeah, step foot it. into that building anymore right i had to take a year off in between the board and the presidency so that was 
10 out of 11 years. Uh, yeah. And I'm president of the Huntsville chapter now. Oh, there you go. You see, you can't stay out. Well, I, 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 when I, the reason I, I brought that up is, is I think that's a testament to um, that you're, you're just not one of these companies that are in it for the money, you know, poach all the low-hanging fruit and then run and there are you know several companies in our industry that are that way uh, i appreciate the fact that uh, you you give back to our industry and um, it, it, it shows we, we are believers in that if you come through our lobby now um, you'll see um, the only smta award we've ever won is we won the cor- corporate award I, I forget exactly what it's called but we won the IPC's corporate award the same year, wow. and um, because we we have multiple chapter presidents of SMTA, we've got a, um, probably four or five committee people for IPC, and you know we're we're strong believers in giving back, and because uh, it's we're we're all in this together, and I'm not going to just sit here and make you do the work and try to take the benefits from it. So. Well, you're certainly uh, laying out a groundwork and setting the path for the next Jim and David Raby and Ellen Raby to uh, to start their businesses. So, well, thanks for being my guest today. It's very insightful. And uh, audience, thanks for either listening or watching uh, today's uh, broadcast. If you are listening in your car and you want to see um, what handsome David looks like, uh, go on our YouTube channel, just search Concept Creation, and we have a video version of this as well. Also, don't forget to hit the subscribe button so you don't miss an episode. Uh, and uh, we do release new episodes of this uh, show, the Concept Creation Show, on the first and third Tuesday of each month. So, David, thanks again for being my guest. I really appreciate it. Hey, thanks for having me, Mike. I was meant to be free, meant to be free.